like you turn your Bibles now to Daniel chapter 11, verse 1 through 45. And as you're turning there, a reminder, of course, that um, we have a reception for the Gillilands this afternoon from 3 to 5. And I hope you'll be able to take some serious time to be able to express your love, your support, your encouragement to them. Okay, good. Now, I don't know how James and I pulled this one off, but we're talking about the Antichrist this morning. And so I'd like to have you turn to chapter 11 and verse 36, because I'm going to cut to the chase. Verses 1 through 35 deal with the background to him. And there are about 135 prophecies that are fulfilled just in those 35 verses historically. Historians would have their eyes almost glazed over by the degree of fulfillment here. This in and of itself would want you to tell people about Jesus because that God could sovereignly superintend all of these prophecies and make them come to uh, pass in the past. Can't he do the same for the future? So now with that in mind, I want to take a look at the future, and we're going to start again with the end in mind in verse 36 through the end of the chapter. And here we read, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. Pause. The phrase, till the indignation is accomplished, pertains to the tribulation. For what is decreed shall be done speaks of God's sovereignty. Verse 37. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor, and he shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow, pass through. And he shall come into the glorious land, pause, that's Israel, it's modern-day Palestine. So let me read that again. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. Pause. That's modern-day Jordan. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. 
and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea, that's the Mediterranean, and the glorious holy mountain, that of course is Mount Zion, outside of Israel. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So we're going to be looking at these verses. There's going to be a lot of history that I'm going to try to summarize. We have to do that to be able to pull together 45 verses to be able to see the significance of what's here. And believe me, there is significance here, and we need to understand it. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. My Father, now what we want to do is to get the sense of your presence among us and within us to be the driving force of understanding what's here for our very eyes. We see what's happening in this world, the global issues of 2015, and yet we're dealing with the issues at the same time in our personal lives of 2015. We've got to see how the big picture and then at the same time the common rhythms of daily living all fit together in what is written. So, Father, as we're now investing time, as we've inched into the latter portions of Daniel, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus him only. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. When World War I broke out, the war ministry in London had dispatched a, a coded message to one of the British outposts in the inaccessible regions of Africa. The message read, quote, War declared. Arrest all enemies in your district. The war ministry received this prompt reply, quote, Have arrested ten Germans, six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please advise immediately who we are at war with. Unquote. So this world looks at the chaos and the confusion. There is this underlying question that has to be answered. In reality, who are we at war with? What I want to be able to do in these four to five verses, in these minutes together is to thread together past into future by understanding that God has decreed that there is a messianic line. Messiah, Old Testament word for Christ, New Testament word. 
There's a messianic line that comes out of Adam and Eve forward to Jesus Christ. But there's a counterfeit line. There's an anti-messianic line. And the anti-messianic line seeks to thwart the messianic line. So in your Older Testament, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, didn't they? But interestingly enough, in the midst of what ought to have been a worship experience, the first religious war occurred when Cain killed Abel. And when I hear modern-day secularists talk about religious wars, I want to say there's nothing new under the sun in 2015. The Bible itself speaks of this fact. When Cain killed Abel, when the anti-Messianic line sought to thwart the forward movement of the Messianic line, but God overcame that and replaced Abel with Seth, and the Messianic plan moved forward through Bethlehem to Calvary. Now what I want to do with you in these brief minutes together is to create a sense of a survey of the two lines, the messianic line leading to Jesus and the counterfeit anti-messianic line that the evil one has sought to institute to confuse people along the way. And thus Pharaoh would have babies killed in Egypt. And thus Herod would have babies killed in Bethlehem. All because the evil one feels extremely threatened by this messianic plan and wants to use an anti-messianic strategy to thwart the plan. So in 2015, when you watch what happens in France this past week, in 2015, when you examine what's carefully taking place in the Middle East over the course of these days, I want you to continuously address the issue that World War I military experts were addressing. Please advise immediately who we're at war with and try to understand this through the lines that we're threading in this 11th chapter together. There's three considerations I want to draw out for us this morning. The first flows out of verse 1 all the way through 35. I'm going to have to summarize And we're going to put it like this. Then number one, as we consider the anti-Messianic line, I now want you to note with me, first of all, the historical fulfillments. As, As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now bear in mind again that Daniel loves the Messiah to come. We know as Jesus. And yet he has been exiled in a foreign land, what we now know as modern-day Iraq-Iran region. And there have been a succession of leaders as there have been a succession of empires. But through it all, even though he's been called upon to advise these non-Christian emperors, he maintains his Christian conviction which we ought to do as well in a secularized and growing secularized society. Watch how he handles his political issues. Now in verse 2, you and I are told, and now I will show you the truth. And so the church of Jesus Christ nationally has got to be able at the cutting edge of this growing secularized society of showing people the truth, which is what we're trying to do even now. 
examining the news in light of the good news. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. That's modern-day Iran. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. When he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, if you and I were tracking these various visions that have been described in chapter 2 and again in chapter 7, take, for example, chapter 2, where the Babylonian kingdom, led by Nebuchadnezzar, in this vision was the head of gold, followed by the Medo-Persian kingdom. In other words, Iraq replaced by Iran, which was the chest and arms of silver, But then a third kingdom would arrive on the scene, the Greco-Macedonian kingdom, and that vision was such that the middle and thighs were that of bronze. Now look carefully at verse, the end of verse 2. He shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. A third kingdom is emerging, consistent with what God had promised prior to all this. Then in verse 3, a mighty king shall arise. A mighty king. Who's that, you're asking me? Look at his picture that appears on the screen. His name? His name is Alexander the Great. And he takes over the kingdom from his father. And what Alexander did was to move both eastward and westward sweeping through the continents, conquering nation after nation after nation, Hellenizing them, the Greek language became the common language of the land, which is interesting then because he was the forerunner for us then having usage of the Greek New Testament because that was the language that, that Paul and the apostles and so forth wrote in. Accomplished this, achieved all this, and died at the age of 33. which is a reminder of the illustration that I used just a month or two back with regard to him, that the time of his death as his coffin was being taken down the streets, he had established that his hands were not to be wrapped in grave cloths, which be left outside the casket, that everybody could see they were empty. He conquered two worlds, the east and the west, the treasures of both, and yet in his death could not retain even the smallest portion of these treasures. His hands were empty, but your Lord has the whole wide world in his hands. And it's a reminder to you and a reminder to me that no matter what we're trying to achieve in life and what it is we're attempting to accumulate in life, we leave empty-handed. And the issue is not what I have in my hands. The issue is as to whether or not Jesus Christ holds me in his hands. Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? 
Do you have that eternal security because he holds you? It's not you holding him or anything else. He holds you. Do you realize at this point that when Daniel is sharing what is about to take place, he lived in the 500 B.C. time period. Alexander lived in the 300 B.C. time period. He's making a statement with regard to what will take place 200 years hence. But because of the fact, chapter 10 ends with these words, But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. And in verse 2, he decides to explain this by saying, Now I will show you the truth. Likewise, what you and I do, even when we're sharing the gospel, is saying, Do you realize that the Bible even promised 200 years prior Alexander's arrival and his conquering of the nations, and it happened, and while you're involving yourself in this in your history lessons, do you realize the scriptures, which are timeless, are talking about these things in a timely way, and that God who stands outside of time is the conqueror of time and sent his son in the fullness of time to die for your sins and mine? See how you can work with all this astounding stuff. And how God would even use an Alexander the Great to pave the way so that people would have a language that was a common language so that the Apostle Paul and others could use this as they wrote without having to learn multiple languages, share the gospel. Astounding. Then a mighty king shall arise, and that's him, who shall rule with great dominion, And do as he wills. But what is fascinating to me, as you continue to examine your history in verse 4, that as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. You see, he died early, age of 33. Even that is being spoken of here in the opening of verse 4. Here's what interests us all the more. And the history teachers in our congregation could help us with this is that as soon as he died, he did not have a son, biological son. And so his kingdom had to be divided up among four generals. Do you realize that 200 years prior to that, the Bible predicted four would take what he had conquered and divide it among them? It doesn't speak generally, it speaks specifically. And notice carefully how it reads in verse 4. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. As soon as. He was barely getting traction. And notice and underline this. Divided toward the four winds of heaven. It doesn't just say the winds of heaven. The number four. There were four generals. Cassandra. Lysimachus. Ptolemy and Seleucus, who had to divide up this kingdom among themselves. There's your Bible at work. It's interacting with history. And God, when he promises something in advance, he's basically just simply saying, history has already been established. I'm just filling in you in on the future of history. Not of his posterity. Did you see that? It's already saying, Alexander, this will not be his biological offspring. 
It's going to be divided among fours. Nor according to the authority which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. At the end of the Christmas season, my, my family had gathered together and we had a Monopoly game going. You ever do that? And the clock was ticking and we were all going to be heading in our various directions. And it was late at night and there is a hotel on, on Boardwalk and another hotel on Park Place. You know, houses scattered around us. Everybody's trying to be master of the board. Next day, I'm looking at this board, and there's these hotels and these houses and all this money stacked up. Everybody's gone. So I put the hotels back in the container and the houses back in the container and fold up the board and set it in its box. And I say, this is life. There's nobody here to maintain, to keep this thing going. It's all just simply put away. Everybody wants to be master of the board. But time marches on. But there's a timeless one who on that third day rose from the dead. If you've played chess over the Christmas season, you know that when the king and the queens and everything else, including the pawns, are spread on the board. The king stands tall, but at the end, the king and the queen are all put back into the box, and everybody's kind of leveled out. And now Alexander's been leveled out, and his generals have been leveled out. But there is one who on that third day was raised from the dead. And while their kingdoms vanish, his kingdom is sustained. Now, look very carefully, though, because the evil one doesn't like that, and so he continues to try to establish counterfeit kingdoms. And so in verse 21, let's look at this individual. We're going to call him a contemptible person. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Who is this? His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. There's a picture of him. And as you look very carefully at him, and we're trying to get our bearings, what we have to bear in mind is exactly what we have written, of course, in our inserts. Then 1 John 2.18, John had warned that the Antichrist is coming in the last hour of history but already many antichrists have come. Every generation, then, has an anti-messianic element attached to it. This one, his name was Antiochus. And Antiochus lived in the 200 to 100 B.C. range. And Daniel's still speaking, and speaking specifically. And this man had been so humiliated on one of his military campaigns, he turned his rage against Jerusalem. You can read about that, say, in verse 28. He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So what happened historically? Glad you asked. Stormed the city. 
massacred roughly 80,000 men, women, children. You can read about it in 2 Maccabees, chapter 5, 11 through 14. And get this, get this. In 168 B.C., he returned to Jerusalem and desecrated the sanctuary by sacrificing swine on the altar and erecting a statue of the Olympian god Zeus. You ever notice the spirituality of the Olympics, by the way? In the ceremonies just prior to the beginning of the games? Now connect that historically with what now is stated in verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And Daniel's now talking two, three hundred years prior and yet he is that specific. Now, what you and I have to do is to say if that God can be that specific about historical fulfillments of the past, he can do the same with regard to the future because he stands outside of time. But now, furthermore, what we find here is that you are given an overview of what the Jews through the generations have faced in verse 34 and 35. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits. And notice, somebody's in charge. And it's not Antiochus. It's God. It still awaits the appointed time. Now, what you find here at the end of verse 34 and 35 is what the Jews have experienced. See, in the Holocaust, in the tragedies in the Middle East. And in verse 35, three significant words and phrases are used. Refine purified, made white. And we wonder why there seems to be such a thrust against the messianic line, furthermore against the Jewish people, but it is all part and parcel of this big strategy that the evil one is thrusting himself against. You know, when Napoleon was crowned emperor of France in 1804. The Pope was brought in to preside over the coronation ceremonies. He was to place the crown on Napoleon's head. Get this. At the last moment, Napoleon changed the proceedings and grabbed the crown from the Pope's hands and crowned himself. Now, I'd argue that that's exactly what's happening generation by generation by generation. And what we find, in essence, is a power struggle and an authority struggle globally, and at the same time, you probably see it in your own workplace, maybe even in your own homes. And this tremendous power struggle that's happening relationally happens globally. And in the big picture of things, there is a messianic line and an anti-messianic line, and thus a Cain kills an Abel. Pharaoh has babies put to death. Haman seeks to annihilate the Jews in what's now modern-day Iran. Herod has babies in Bethlehem put to death. But God continues to overtake the anti-Messiac line with his supremacy, and three days later, the Messiah is raised, you see, from the dead. 
Now, what I want to do at this point is bridge past the future. We don't want to become time-bound people. What we want is the timeless and the timely to come together. See how the eternal shapes the temporal. And what you see at the end of verse 35 and at the beginning of verse 36 is a shift from the past to the future. And he's saying, just as you saw antichrists in the past, a small a, as First John chapter 2 points out, many antichrists have come. This paves the way for that climactic ultimate to occur, that antichrist due to come in the future. And notice how he bridges history and the future together in one sweep of written expression of truth. And you say, well, why can't he at least talk about how long, Gary? Maybe we can use this as a little analogy. Years ago, I was a pastoral intern in Ohio, where I met Pam, and... It's the church now that Alistair Begg, if you hear of his uh, international ministry, um, he's senior pastor of good friend. And I had asked, been asked since I arrived on the scene to take a group of 40 to 50 college and career students rappelling out in uh, Quebec. So we hopped on a plane, head out, got in some hydroplanes, went out some islands, Great fun. And I would, I would be standing there hitched up, you know, have my Bible and explaining matters of faith and just drop off the cliff and without explaining in advance what I was about to do. And you hear the gasps, you know, but it was all worked out. I remember one day where we had a week of solo, and I was on one hill, a small little island out there, and then another one of the people in the college career group was on another hill and somebody else on another little island third hill and I had my binoculars because I was overseeing the group and as I looked out on my hill I noticed that the person on the second hill and the third hill it looked like from my perspective were basically together and I couldn't determine that there was a gap a geographic gap between that second and third hill it just seemed like everything was condensed And I thought about the scriptures and the way in which God works with time. And I thought about how, as theologians call this prophetic foreshortening, God takes an immense amount of time and condenses it. And then allows you to pick up your binoculars and you look out and you, it seems as though the events are all arranged together, but God who sees time sees sees the valleys and sees the water between those hills, the timeline. So the next time you go repelling, you'll be thinking about these things, you see. But what I want to say to you now is that history is incredibly relevant because you have seen now an anti-messianic line of individuals that's preparing the way through a series of promised fulfillments that prep you to understand what the future Antichrist is all about because this leads to our second significant consideration. And you find now in verse 36 to 39 that secondly, as we consider the anti-Messianic line, I want you to note with me the personal distinctives of this individual. 
and the king shall do as he wills. Now we're thrusting ourselves forward into that time still to come. And notice the descriptives here. There are at least two distinctives that I see here in these verses. The first one I want you to notice is how he goes about and he magnifies himself. 36 and 37. Look for that word. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and speak astonishing things against the god of gods. See that anti-messianic stance that he's taking? Magnifies himself. It's a reminder to you and me that whenever we're prone to become proud, who we're, in essence, aligning ourselves with. Verse 37. Notice the three elements attached to the way he goes about magnifying himself. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, in other words, his heritage or to the one beloved by women, I take that to mean a child that she has, who perhaps as you see ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever right now, they don't take the idea of being made in the image of God seriously, are willing to quickly put a child to death. He shall pay no attention to any other God, thirdly, Why? For he shall magnify himself above all. Not only does he magnify himself, furthermore, he fortifies himself. Verses 38-39. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. In other words, he takes all that he has achieved monetarily, and puts it into his apparatus militarily. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses. He magnifies himself, verse 36, 37. Fortifies himself, verse 38, 39. With the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for price. And so now, what you and I see here is that this is an individual, then, whose personal distinctives are such that you could reduce them, you could combine them, and say, number one, he magnifies himself, number two, he fortifies himself, and was this promised? We'll look very carefully again at the passage that we are using that threads all this together historically with Alexander and the four generals, with Antiochus Epiphanes, 1 John 2, verse 18, leaps in front of your eyes and my eyes. Consider what it is, children. It's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. We've already reviewed that historically with some historical snapshots. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He magnifies himself. Muhammad Ali in 1971, and before he took on Joe Frazier, I remember that fight. He was standing in front of the cameras and said, there seems to be some confusion. We're going to clear up this confusion on March 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who's king. 
There's not a man alive who can whip me. He jabs the air. Half a dozen blinding lefts. I'm too smart, he taps his head. I'm too pretty, he lifts the head. High in profile, turning it as he uh, shares his glory with others. I'm the greatest. I am the king. I should be on a postage stamp. That's the only way I could get licked. I want you to see how this willful king gets licked. Thirdly, as we consider the anti-messianic line, I want you to note with me the final outcome. Verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him. In other words, now, what we've got is international conflict emerging, chaos. Notice the weaponry Daniel is familiar with. Shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. This is the symbols he had of what to work with militarily based upon the time period he lived in. Transport that into the time of technology we have today. Notice that this man knows no borders. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. But I want you to examine very carefully what is written of in verse 41. And he shall come into the glorious land. That is Israel-Palestine. Now ponder all that's happening in the Middle East right now and the tremendous global tensions that find themselves competing in that small microscopic geographic center, the epicenter of this world. Tens of thousands shall fall, which is, of course, promised in the end of Zechariah's writings pertaining to Armageddon. Edom and Moab in the main part of the Ammonites, which is modern-day Jordan. He shall stretch out his hand, verse 42, against the countries. So he's seeking now like an Alexander, like the four generals, like Antiochus Epiphanes. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries like a Hitler, a Mussolini, a Hirohito, like an ISIS, and so on. Understand the historical and how it relates to the contemporary. How all these things are flowing, and what you see here now is both messianic and anti-messianic lines in conflict with one another. And he shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And then think of the late Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyans, and now Ethiopia, the Kushites, shall follow in his train. But something happens militarily that captures his attention. News from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction, speaking now of the Jewish population, and even Antiochus Epiphanes was simply a forerunner, and a Hitler, a forerunner, and so on, of that future event. And in verse 45, and we can't say this is 
the past because it extends beyond anything that has occurred thus far historically. This is future. But you already have past fulfillments that have been outlined in the first 35 verses to say if God could make those promises, 135 of them already be fulfilled in the first 35 verses. Then you're standing on that first hill, and you're looking at the second hill and the third hill, and you're seeing how all of this now coalesces. And now you look at the geography of the epicenter of this world. And it says, He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea, Mediterranean, and the glorious holy mountain, that's Mount Zion. And where did Jesus Christ, from what did he ascend into the heavens, Mount Zion? And to what will he return, Mount Zion? You see how all of this is fitting together? Stunning stuff. He's pitched his tent. And this is a descriptive of Armageddon. And my mind went back to the 1984 campaign where Ronald Reagan was running, and the NBC correspondent, Marv Kolb, asked Reagan, quote, Do you feel that we are now heading past for some kind of a nuclear Armageddon? And the cameras fixated upon Nancy Reagan, I remember that. And President Reagan responded, The biblical prophecies about what pretend to be the coming of Armageddon, a number of theologians have believed that this was true, and the prophecies are coming together that pretend that. And then he added, perhaps to soothe Marvin Kelb's, Marvin Kelb's heart, no one knows that these prophecies mean that Armageddon is a thousand years away, or the day after tomorrow. So policy-wise, I have never seriously warned and said we must plan according to Armageddon. But you had a president who was Armageddon conscious, you see. Daniel is Armageddon conscious. Verse 45, as you watch what's happening in the Middle East, in Israel in particular. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion. Mark how this ends. Yet he shall come to his end. This ultimate climactic Antichrist figure. He's left alone. And none to help him. Which takes you right back to what we covered in Daniel chapter 7 verse 26. Because when we examine very carefully in that chapter the visions that were described, it speaks of this heavenly court of gods, and the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, speaking of this Antichrist, shall be taken away. He's referenced to distinguish as the little horn in that chapter. To be consumed and destroyed to the end. But I want you to see now the ultimate contrast and the supremacy of God's messianic line as compared to the anti-messianic line. Because in verse 27, you and I are informed that the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, Jesus, shall be an everlasting kingdom. His hands are full. Alexander's empty. Antiochus, empty. Hitler, empty. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, 
be empty. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, you see, three days later, is Lord. Have arrested ten Germans, six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians and an American. Please advise immediately who we're at war with. And now we've got an opportunity to explain evangelistically who we are at war with. And then tell everyone, our God has the whole wide world in his hands. Let's stand together. Thanking you now, Father, for the opportunities we've had here to worship you. Thanking you for James' ministry in our midst. We look forward to saying thank you this afternoon to him individually. But, Father, I want to thank you most of above all for the one who matters most, Jesus. And here we see the everlasting kingdom. And here we see how the anti-Messianic line and the Messianic line collide, the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet you raised the King of Kings from the grave so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord to your glory. There's one here today who's trying to keep their hands full Empty those hands and remind them of the one who died so that he could hold him or her right now in his hands. We pray they put their faith and trust in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.